The American Health Care Act, passed by the House of Representatives last month, is now in the Senate's hands. Like their counterparts in the House, Senate Republicans don't have much room to work with if they hope to pass the bill under reconciliation rules and without any Democratic support. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with John McDonough, a professor of public health practice at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Professor McDonough has written a perspective article about the outlook for the AHCA in the Senate. Professor McDonough, as you write in your article, Senate Republicans will use the budget reconciliation process to try to approve their bill. What will the rules that apply under reconciliation mean for the AHCA? Well, the rules mean, first and foremost, that complete or near total repeal of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, is not possible because using reconciliation, you can only repeal matters which have a direct fiscal impact on the federal budget, either positive or negative. And the rules are arcane and require a lot of expertise in terms of the people who are the professionals in the Senate to determine what's in and what's out. For example, a big part of the Affordable Care Act, Title III of the law, deals with transforming the U.S. medical care system away from fee-for-service financing to paying-for-value, so-called. And under the reconciliation rules, most of those matters would not be germane for a repeal under the reconciliation rules. So they're dealing with the financing of Medicare and Medicaid, although very little of Medicare. They're dealing with the tax increases and the subsidies for private health insurance. And that's pretty much all that's being addressed in this law, which is in many ways the substantive and most high-profile parts of the law, but definitely not the whole thing. So has budget reconciliation ever been used to approve legislation as substantial as health care reform? Oh, yes. So it was used in the 1990s to do that decade's welfare reform law in 1996. It was used in the early 2000s, in 2001 and 2003, to implement President George W. Bush's tax cut agenda. It was not used to pass the original Affordable Care Act. However, the version of the law that passed through the regular non-reconciliation process on March 23, 2010, was followed up a week later by a reconciliation bill that made key changes to it that could satisfy the House of Representatives at the time. So, yes, there have been substantive laws that have been done under reconciliation rules, although this matter stands out in terms of the scope and policy importance. Twenty Republican senators come from states that expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. How much pressure do you think they're going to face to oppose extensive cuts now to Medicaid? That is one of the most important forces that is being debated right now in the Senate behind closed doors where they're attempting to craft their policy. Some of those senators are deeply committed to the expansions and don't want them to go away, including West Virginia's Senator Capito, Alaska's Senator Murkowski. Some of the 20 actually are in favor of eliminating the Medicaid expansion in the ACA, including the senator from Pennsylvania and several other members as well. So 
there are differences of opinion even within that group. However, the challenge is that Republicans can only afford on the floor of the Senate to lose two of their 52 members. So they'll have at least 50 people voting for it, and then the vice president gets to break a tie, which would be the 51st vote. So it's not clear-cut. And also, in recent weeks, some of the senators who were complaining about major cuts to Medicaid have kind of softened their stance. And instead of saying you can't eliminate the expansion entirely, they're saying that they'd like a longer glide path instead of three years or so in the House bill to stretch it out to seven years. So it appears to be a bit of a moving target in terms of where people are actually coming down on this. And it is one of the two or three most important and most significant issues in there. The House bill would have cut Medicaid spending over 10 years by $838 billion, or about a 25% cut, which many groups, including American Hospital Association, American Medical Association, and many other groups, have very deep concerns about, which is why they are actually lobbying quite aggressively to try and prevent any major erosion of Medicaid in whatever comes out in the Senate. You also write in your article that the AHCA bans all federal payments to Planned Parenthood for non-abortion-related services. Abortion is already prohibited at a payment for them. And that that provision would cause at least two Republican senators to vote no. So where does that stand? And what other dividing lines do you see? The money to Planned Parenthood has been an electric issue in the Congress for many, many years, and it's gotten hotter over more recent years with some of the conservative activists making allegations about Planned Parenthood practices. Right now, the Senate leadership, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, is wrestling with how to thread this needle without losing more votes. But Senator Susan Collins from Maine and Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska are very much in a place where they're saying that if funding for Planned Parenthood is eliminated, then they cannot vote for any legislation that would do that. It's unclear how many Republicans on the other side are making cutting off funding for Planned Parenthood a litmus test. Also, and this happened back in 2010 on the Democratic side, but abortion politics are very much playing into this legislative process. Part of the House bill that passed on May 4th says that no insurance policy that provides coverage for abortion can receive any federal subsidies at all even if the abortion is financed separately and no federal money goes to supporting abortion services. The problem with that is there's some very large states, including California and New York, where abortion coverage in individual health insurance is a mandated benefit. And so the provision in the House version would essentially say that no otherwise income-eligible recipients of federal subsidies in those two states, for example, and others, would get any financial help at all, which would cut off a number of millions of Americans from coverage in those two states and others. So that's, again, one of the other litmus test issues Abortion disagreements almost brought down and prevented the passage of the original Affordable Care Act back in 2010, and it could get equally hot this time. The interest groups on both sides of that divide have been mobilizing quite aggressively.
Republicans campaigned last year on the promise to repeal and replace the ACA right away, but health care reform's taking longer than many of them had hoped or thought. So what effect is the ongoing uncertainty having on insurers and on consumers, on patients? Well, in particular, the uncertainty over the future of the law, but even more immediately, the unwillingness of the Trump administration to take steps to calm and reassure the insurance carriers involved in the individual insurance market is having a significantly adverse impact in terms of insurers making moves to withdraw from the market beginning in 2018 or restricting the number of markets in which they operate because of the unwillingness of the Trump administration to indicate, for example, continued support for enforcing the ACA's individual mandate, and also, and perhaps more importantly, the unwillingness of the Trump administration to indicate support for at least temporary continuation of what is known in the ACA as the cost-sharing reductions. So there's a piece of the ACA that says that for lower middle-income families getting coverage through a state health insurance exchange, state or federal, that they have protections in terms of how much they might have to pay out of pocket for deductibles, coinsurance, copayments, and other kinds of cost sharing. The Obama administration used ACA funding to directly finance those cost sharing reductions. There was a federal lawsuit that is still going on challenging the Obama administration's providing these funds without a congressional appropriation. It is still very much up in the air. The leadership in Congress, including the Republican leadership, has advised the Trump administration to just continue to pay for it while this legal matter is determined. The Trump administration has said back, well, if you guys want to continue this, why don't you just appropriate the money that's not in our hands? And there's a stalemate over it in a way that is creating a bit of a downward spiral in terms of the stability of the individual health insurance market. And of course, then that instability that's created by this uncertainty is used by the Republican leadership in Congress and President Trump as evidence that the ACA marketplaces are fatally flawed and see, we told you it's all going to hell in a handbasket. So finally, given all of that, Do you think that the Republican leadership is going to find a way to satisfy both the moderate and the more conservative wings of the party? And if they do, what is that Senate bill going to look like? The belief is that the version that is being prepared in the Senate right now under Mitch McConnell's leadership is a scaled back version of what passed the House, that the 10-year impact in terms of the loss of coverage of as many as 23 million Americans who now have health insurance may in fact be resembled in the bill that will move forward, although people would lose coverage over several years as opposed to 14 million, losing it the first year under the House version. Whether they can thread that needle, thread actually several needles at once, to be able to patch together 50 votes among the 52 Republicans in the Senate is something that everyone is wondering and asking right now. I don't think anybody, including Mitch McConnell, knows the answer to it. Mitch McConnell is a master in the Senate legislative process. This is what these people get paid for 
to handle these complicated, contentious lightning rod issues and to get them through the chamber successfully. This is probably taxing every one of Mitch McConnell's legislative skills that he's learned over his many years in Congress. And I think it's really hard to say right now. I'd be reluctant to vote against, to bet against their likelihood of success. But I'd also be reluctant to bet on the other side as well. Thank you, Professor McDonough.